0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 140, The Console Market of the 70s and 80s, Part 1. one two,
1: three, four. If anybody wants to find-
0: Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Since we're done with our vacation down in Brazil, let's look at all the wonderful things here in America. There's a problem, Alex. There is. It appears my cell phone technology doesn't work. Oh, no. These people seem to be dressed like they were in the 1970s. 1970s? We went through the Bermuda Triangle and went back in time. Oh, dear. You can do that? Apparently, yes. (laughs)
1: That's right. We are going to take a little trip back to the 1970s, even the early 1980s, and do a broad overview of the console market in this time period. We've discussed a lot of this before individually. Obviously, I think we've done an episode on Atari at some point in the past. If by and you mean something probably closer to 10, yes. (laughs) You know, we've done Mattel Electronics, we've done Coleco, we've even done Fairchild and Magnavox, but we haven't done kind of an overarching episode that really connects the dots all together. So rather than getting into the nitty-gritty of this is the story of the creation of this console, this is the story of the creation of that console, doing something that's just kind of like, hey, here's the console market, here's how it developed, here's what's going on there at a higher level.
0: In effect, what we're going to be doing is looking at all the console makers during the 70s, early 80s, and see how did they all interact. We've done this with other time periods, we've done this with other countries, but oddly enough, in the early 70s up to the crash, we never really tied all these companies together. We never tied how Atari, Coleco so on and so forth, all interacted in order to create the video game industry. We've talked about them broadly. We know that certainly Atari had a major influence, but it wasn't the only influence. Absolutely. Hopefully here we can take
1: a little step back and tie all this stuff together in the period coming before the crash.
0: Judging by this newspaper here, we are in 1970-what?
1: Well, we are in the year 1972, which is when this whole crazy console market thing begins with the Magnavox Odyssey. We've, of course, talked about the Magnavox Odyssey before and Magnavox's role in starting the industry. So again, we don't need to go into Ralph Baer's whole creation of the thing. It's more apropos to kind of just think about the time period we're in at this moment. Video games are in this weird category of thing called a consumer electronic. And I know to all of you listening in 2021 and beyond that that is not a strange thing at all. But we've taken our Bermuda Triangle trip back to 1972. And believe me, the people around here are giving us funny looks when we mention this thing, consumer electronics.
0: In fact, those men in black over there are slowly closing in on us because we have these mysterious cell phone things. Apparently, that's messing with some of their secret surveillance stuff.
1: (laughs) Right. So, uh, consumer electronics are obviously much older than the 1970s, because both the television and the radio are consumer electronics. But this is a field that is still rather new in terms of thinking of it as an entire category, because you think of radio as radio and you think of television as television. And other than those two things, you don't have much that really falls into such a category. So people aren't really thinking in those terms yet. This is right before you're going to start getting the first video tape recorders, VTRs, as they used to call them back then, as opposed to VCRs, which they called them when we were kids. and, And then half our listeners are like, what's that? Anyway, you don't have VCRs or VTRs quite yet. Laserdisc has just been invented at RCA a couple of years before and hasn't been commercialized yet. You have a small number of TV add-ons like antenna boosters and whatnot to improve your capture of television signals that are coming over the
0: air. Of which there's only like seven.
1: (laughs) Right. Cable TV is a thing, but... It's not really a thing yet because nobody has started any dedicated cable television channels. It's just basically a more expensive way to get what you can already get off the air. The idea of even hooking something into your television at this time is really, really unusual. There are, as I said, you could buy like special antennas or antenna boosters to get a better signal. And I'm sure there's one or two other random things that even I'm not aware of because this is before my time, but you didn't plug things into your television. And so that's really kind of the amazing innovation that Ralph Baer and his team did with the Magnavox Odyssey, because it's not just a matter of coming up with the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you actually interacted with your television? That's something that vaguely kind of already is a concept in tech circles just because you do have real-time computers and video display terminals just starting to come in in the 1960s, even though that's not a television, that's still interacting with something on a screen that's very similar to a television. So it's it's not just that you have to be like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you weren't just watching your television? You also kind of had to be like, How are you going to make your television that is designed to tune in to a signal being broadcast over the air, how are you going to make that interactive and plug something into it that's going to override that signal? That's kind of the real technological breakthrough that Ralph Baer and his team had to come up with. They figured out that if you wire the system directly into your antenna array, basically, that you can send a powerful signal that's powerful enough to override what's coming in over the air. You have to tune to a channel, and he chose channel 3 and channel 4 because those channels tended to be unoccupied back in the day. Those were not channels that usually had something broadcasting on it. You weren't getting your CBS or your ABC through those channels in most markets. If you are getting something over one of those channels in your market, you probably weren't getting something over both of them. Basically, you just hook that into the television and it sends this powerful signal that overrides what's coming in over the air. Voila, you can play a video game. In terms of trying to find a company willing to make that product, that was just as much of a challenge. Again, there was no consumer electronics market. This is not something anyone really understood As existing. So you have to convince someone that this is worth doing. The television manufacturers obviously are out there, but the television manufacturers are making money hand over fist just on television sets. They're in well over 90% of American homes. Of course, I'm speaking just of America because this is a phenomenon that started in the United States, even though it very quickly spread to other places. The television companies are doing just fine. Color TV is starting to pick up steam, so you have a lot of people replacing their televisions, even that already have a television, because the transition from black and white to color is well underway, started really gaining steam in the late 1960s. The giants in the field like RCA don't necessarily have much of an impetus to change to something else. Now, that would change very quickly because Sony is about to come in in a big way with a little thing called Trinitron. The Japanese are about to pretty much dismantle the American television market. But that's only just starting at this point, and I'm not sure that most of the television companies were quite aware of the danger yet that they were about to be in. At this period, all of the televisions in the U.S. were still basically American-made televisions. Zenith, RCA, Magnavox, Sears made its own television. Some of these brands still exist today. You can still find some of these, but most of them are not necessarily (laughs) American anymore. They've been bought out by foreign companies that just kept the brand because they're longstanding in the United States. That's kind of where we are at this point, and it's really not an accident that It ends up being a television manufacturer doing this because they're the ones that are already dealing with this technology. They're the ones that already understand it. You know, Ralph Baer originally thought, hey, why don't I go to the cable companies, of which there were very few at the time, because he thought to himself, these are companies that are struggling because they don't have a compelling product maybe we can adapt this so that it works with a cable system. We talked about this in the Magnavox episode, but the idea was a cable company could broadcast an elaborate background that you would then tune to that channel. Because, of course, at this time, since there weren't dedicated cable channels, cable could broadcast on a humongous array of channels and there was nothing on any of those channels. So putting just a backdrop of a tennis court on permanent display on channel... 40 wouldn't be a big deal because you're not taking away from a real television channel. So he was like, they could just broadcast an elaborate background for a game. We could modify our prototype to accept a cable signal. And then they can tune to that channel and the cable signal would come into the console. And when you're playing your tennis game, you'd have this great realistic backdrop of a tennis court because, of course, the Odyssey couldn't do background graphics. They went to Teleprompter, which at that time was a cable company. Obviously, that's not what we know them for today, but that's how they started. They were kind of interested, but they just couldn't get together the financing. So at that point, they went to the television companies, and most of them were uninterested. RCA actually was. RCA was the largest television company. They were generally a company that was always looking to keep the cutting edge going. They kind of fall off as the 70s go on due to some mismanagement. But they're a company that's always about following the latest trends and making sure they stay on top of things. So they were interested but wanted too much for it. They wanted Bear and Sanders to basically hand over everything and be left with almost nothing, so they turned that down. Magnavox is the one that finally signs on because they're the television company that's actually having some of the worst trouble In this time period, they've been falling behind their competitors. They've been hurt by some legal rulings that forced them to kind of change their pricing structure to something that wasn't going to be as profitable. So they were basically desperate enough to take a chance. Whenever you have a new technology that's kind of entering the mass market for the first time, sometimes it's done by a company that just sees farther can see that something new is coming and introduces it. But just as often, it's the company that's most desperate and has nothing to lose and is starting to look at every hair-brained scheme they possibly can. That's what Magnavox was doing. They were trying to move into other areas. They were starting into alarm systems. They were trying to push more into car stereo systems. They were trying to diversify into a bunch of fields because their core television and radio market was suffering. So they were like, okay, video games, why not? So that's really why you get the Magnavox Odyssey as the first home console system. Invented by Bear, of course, but the reason that that Magnavox name is on there is because of this situation. Magnavox releases the Odyssey in 1972, and as we've talked about, it's kind of a mixed launch. It's really not that unsuccessful, all things considered. But the problem is Magnavox got a little overexcited about some of their market survey work and market research work before the launch of the console, ended up greatly increasing production, basically producing more than they could realistically sell. It's a fairly expensive system, $100 in 1972 money, which is way more than that today. I mean, we should really put that number in context because you hear that number and it's like, that's nothing. I mean, you pay $500 for a console today. I mean, that's super cheap. Why wouldn't people buy that? But of course, this is right before stagflation really took off. 1972 money and 2021 and forward (laughs) money is not nearly the same thing. So let's plug that in. I know we did this in our Magnavox episode as well, but it Bears repeating here.
0: Also, a few years have passed, so who knows how much more expensive it is. $100. We're rounding. It's actually like ninety-nine, ninety-nine, or something.
1: Got to conclude that tax there. <laughs> That's $638.89. So more expensive than that PS5. Exactly. It's more expensive than the PS5. And all you're doing is, as we said before, generating two dots and one line putting some little plastic overlays on your screen to try to pretend there's more going on than there actually is. All for the low, low price of $638.89
0: plus tax. Yeah, no, not going to be buying (laughs) that one.
1: Right, and of course they also limited sales to their own dealers because, as I said, they were struggling and they wanted to help out their dealers and some marketing executive. And I say that because we don't know who, but we know from depositions that it was a marketing executive decided that, okay, well, we've got this new technology, maybe that'll get people into our stores. So let's only give it to our authorized dealers, which was a thing back in the day. Just like you go to the Honda dealer to get your Honda or your Toyota dealer to get your Toyota. Back in the day, you went to your RCA dealer to get an RCA television or your Magnavox dealer to get your Magnavox television, and neither the Twains shall meet. I'm sure there were plenty of electronic stores that sold everybody, but there were also restricted dealers like that. The video game explosion didn't really start there, even though that was the first console. They sold 69,000 in that first Christmas season. They sold 89,000 the next year. In 1974, they sold 129,000. So they were slowly gaining steam, but... Very, very slowly. It was expensive, it was limited, and it was just kind of a difficult sell in that sense. What really got the market going was actually the parallel development in the semiconductor industry that were going on at this time. The Magnavox Odyssey used fairly primitive technology. It used diode-to-transistor logic instead of transistor-to-transistor or TTL logic. What this means is that rather than using integrated circuits, which were starting to be used in high-end electronics but were still somewhat expensive for lower-end electronics in the early 1970s, they used discrete components. So it was still a digital system. The Atari people at various times have tried to say that it was analog. This is a tactic they started using during the legal cases in the 70s to try to distinguish their work on Pong from Ralph Baer's work on the Odyssey. People like Nolan Bushnell and even, I think, Al Alcorn, who's generally pretty upfront about this stuff, keep trying to refer to it as an analog system. But really, it's digital, but it uses discrete components. It's packed with transistors and diodes rather than with integrated circuits that put all of that stuff on a single microchip. This was obsolete technology, really, even in 1972, but it had the virtue of being cheap.
0: Really, this technology was designed and optimized more for the 60s. Exactly. And
1: that's, of course, when Bayer was doing his, the majority of his work on the system. It was kind of the system of the 1960s, but not available till the 1970s. At the same time, you have this parallel evolution going on in the semiconductor industry where chips are becoming more and more complex. Chips are coming down in price. We're seeing the operation of Moore's Law for the first time, the idea that you double the capability or have the size of technology within a period of, at that time, Moore's Law said a year, 12 months. Since then, it was refined to be 18 months, but it's still held true to this day, even though every technology cycle, it looks like they're not going to make it. One of these days, I think they really will not make it, but it's still mostly held up so far. Basically, about every 18 months, the uh, semiconductor companies are successful in doubling the capability of a chip of a certain size. Then also, that means that you are having the size of a chip that can perform at what had been the current level before. So basically, the new stuff becomes more powerful, and the old stuff becomes smaller and cheaper to achieve the same effect. This is something that we're starting to see in the semiconductor industry at this point. Moore has formulated his law for the first time. You're getting semiconductor companies realizing that they can move from very dedicated low-volume production of complex components for things like defense projects or the space program and actually start to move into mass market production of semiconductors in products that everyday people can use. This is a real turning point in the history of semiconductors, in the history of Silicon Valley. It's a process that really started in the late 1960s, As UHF television started coming in, the big one was really the desktop and then later pocket calculator. Calculators were a thing. Calculators were ridiculously expensive. A good scientific calculator made the Magnavox Odyssey look like a bargain, though obviously, of course, it could also do a lot more than the Magnavox Odyssey at the end of the day. Most people were still using slide rules or just working things out on paper. Certainly the idea of a high school student using a calculator to do even basic arithmetic was something that couldn't and and wouldn't be done back then just because of the exorbitant cost of it all.
0: And I think nowadays it's practically a requirement in any high school math course.
1: Exactly. And even a basic scientific calculator doesn't run you that much money. If you want something more complex, you can still pay a bit for a calculator. But they're cheap, everyday items. I mean, banks give away calculators when you open an account sometimes. I mean, they're throw-ins. They're like pens used to be. I mean, they're just super cheap. And, of course, everyone has one on their phone. So, I mean, even most people don't even use dedicated calculators anymore. They just whip out their cell phones. So, a very different world back in the early 1970s. The microprocessor had come in. In fact, the microprocessor was invented by Intel to serve a calculator project. There were other companies also working to create a microprocessor. It's not that but for calculators we wouldn't have them because it was inevitably coming. But it just so happened that the first microprocessor was developed for a calculator project. The calculator market, the desktop calculator market, started really taking off at the end of the 60s not normally using microprocessors, despite what I just said, but using medium and large-scale integrated circuits. In 1972, Texas Instrument makes the crucial and landmark decision to enter the calculator market under its own name. Up until that time, there had really been a wall between the companies that make chips and the companies that make products using chips. The semiconductor companies saw themselves as being in the component business. They didn't want to get involved with figuring out designing and building whole products and getting into retail. It's different sales forces. It's different pipelines. They were just kind of happy going along and making these chips and letting other people figure out what to do with them especially since, as I said, a lot of this came out of government work, and so they were kind of in the mindset of, we supply chips to people that use them, we don't do things ourselves. The nascent consumer electronic business that's forming here in the area of calculators and whatnot really forced them to change their minds, and it was largely because of the Japanese. The Japanese companies understood the value of, In being able to do everything themselves, to be able to do the components and then do the products that are derived from these components. So you had companies like Busycom and Canon and Sharp and Casio that were in this consumer business. They were reliant on American companies for the chips because the Japanese lagged behind the American companies. They obviously catch up, but at this point, they can't really do the semiconductors themselves. So they're lagging behind in chips, but they're learning. Japanese engineers and scientists are going to every possible conference they can discussing this technology. They're reading every last journal article and technical report that's being done on this technology. They are slowly learning. Texas Instrument realizes that right now we've got a good thing going. We're selling a lot of chips to these Japanese companies and then they're putting them in a lot of calculators. But we also know that they're learning from us and they're going to stop buying from us the moment they can start doing this themselves. They decide to enter the consumer market. They're like, we can be a vertically integrated company. We can buy our own calculator chips from ourselves at cost and greatly reduce the price of the calculators that we then sell. In 1972, they decide to enter this market, and by 1974, they have destroyed it. Absolutely laid waste to the calculator market because they do undercut the competition so much on price. Everyone else is forced to come down in price or they're not going to sell anything. Everyone's margins get destroyed, and the calculator business collapses. Calculators go from $300 to as low as $10 within a period of like four or five years. It's just a complete collapse of the market. But what this calculator market did show is it showed these semiconductor companies and these semiconductor-adjacent companies that the real money— is not in just making the chips, but it's in making consumer electronic products that use the chips. Because even with all of the disastrous end of this calculator market, it's very clear that, yeah, it's fine and dandy to sell a chip to somebody. But if you can sell a chip to somebody and sell the devices that are using that chip, you're going to make so much more money. This is really the beginning of what becomes the video game industry right here in calculators.
0: You wouldn't really think calculators and vertical integration there would lead to video games, but here we are. Absolutely. It does because you have all of these companies that
1: are now looking for the next big thing. Calculators are dead, but boy, was that a wild ride when it was going. So we've got to find something else. They don't quite go to video games right away. There's this little flirtation with digital watches where there's a boom-bust in digital watches after there's a boom-bust in calculators. Again, the digital watch didn't go away, but there was a period of time where you could make a lot of money on it. Texas Instrument, again, was dominating the market. Fairchild Semiconductor, one of their major competitors, got into the market and did okay. Intel got into the market, and it was a disaster for them. But, you know, all these companies then rushed into digital watches and then that market rose and fell very rapidly. But at the same time, of course, you have the video game actually permeating the arcade. I don't think anyone is really looking at the Magnavox Odyssey at this point and saying, oh, there's something that's going to be huge. But they are looking at what happened in the arcade and are like, okay, these Pong games in the arcade did a lot of business, in 1973 particularly. People are just, you know, throwing quarters into these things. Maybe they'd be happy to, rather than throwing quarters in all the time, pay a little bit of a premium and then have the system at home to play instead of having to go out to the arcade and throw quarters in it. There's a through line there, obviously, because Magnavox retools the Odyssey. They get in on having chips in it. They go with medium-scale integration circuits and replace all of these components in the Odyssey with three chips and release the Odyssey 100 and the Odyssey 200 in 1975. So there's a through line going back in Magnavox's work in the field. Really, the gold rush is not caused by Magnavox. The gold rush is caused by a bunch of companies, chip companies, electronics importers, General import-export companies, novelty products companies, all of these kind of weird disparate companies that are like, okay, the calculator business was fun, the digital watch business was fun, those rides are over, what wave can we ride next? The answer was the video game. The system that generates the first excitement in this area, sorry Magnavox, it's not you, is the Atari system, is the home Pong system that Atari releases through Sears in 1975. They're getting into that, obviously, not because of this entire calculators, digital watches, nascent consumer electronics boom-bust thing. They're getting into it because they are a video game company. They made Pong in arcades. Now they want to make Pong in the home, and this is something they'd been thinking about. As early as 1973, there's a famous memo that Al Alcorn saved that shows that Nolan Bushnell is pushing them to do a home version of Pong as early as 1973. The technology was not there at the time, which is why they don't release one then. It's something that was on their minds separate from all of this. Certainly
0: the case where you have them going... You trusted us in the arcade with Pong. Trust us in the home with your Pong on your television. That's absolutely true. And there really was a power to the Atari
1: name, even at that early stage, similar to the power that the Nintendo name had in the 1980s or the Sony name had in the 1990s. It had already built up this credibility amongst those in the know about this new technology. Nolan Bushnell. Say what you will about him and say what you will about his relationship at times with the truth. But the man could promote himself and the man could promote his company. The man made sure that people that were interested in this whole video game thing knew what Atari was. I mean, they already had credibility. So much so that even though Sears was releasing this under their own label, which is what Sears always did with these kind of products, it was private label. Atari makes the product, but Sears markets it as if it's their product. They market it under the uh, Telegames brand. Even though they did the normal thing where they marketed it under their own name, they let Atari put their logo on the physical product, which Sears did. Did not do. When you were buying something out of the Sears catalog or going down to a Sears store to buy something, obviously they sold stuff from other companies as well. But if you were buying a Sears branded product, they didn't tell you, we have somebody else making this for us and we just stamp our name on it. They presented to you that this was a Sears product, period. You never knew who was actually making it for them.
0: For our younger listeners, and probably other people outside of the United States, Sears these days is not a major brand anymore. However, back (laughs) in the 60s, 70s, 80s, to an extent the 90s and early 2000s, they were the name in reliable products. Absolutely. There is a reason you have allusions to in a lot of old shows, say, to the Sears catalog. That was a mail order thing where you could just order a huge amount of things. Fascinating thing about it is that they really stand by their products. And this stays Mm -hmm. true till even today, I think, to an extent. You can take an old, say, beat up Sears branded craftsman, whoever actually made the craftsman thing, we don't know, as Alex just said. Right. But you take that tool or something, you go to Sears and say, hey, this is broken. They'll be, okay, they just hand you a new one. That's how it used to be. I'm not sure if it does it today.
1: They did sell the Craftsman brand finally during their periods of difficulty, which was their biggest brand yet. But yeah, it's, as you say, and I certainly remember doing that, being with my parents in, you know, in the 80s when they're driving to the mall to take something Sears back and, and get it fixed or replaced at no or, or little cost. I mean, yeah, that was a quality brand, Craftsman Tools particularly, but many of the Sears brands, as you say. It's good of you to bring that up because, of course, it's easy to think of Sears today. If you think of Sears at all, you think of, you know, didn't they just go bankrupt and close a lot of their stores? And it's like, yes, yes, they did. The Sears store and our shopping mall finally went out. And I say that because I know, of course, malls are having trouble all over the country. But our mall does pretty well just because it's located in a good place to draw in a lot of people from surrounding communities in Illinois that don't have a lot of shopping options. So when all of these department store chains would announce a store closure of hundreds of stores, our mall never lost its department store. When Penny's closed a ton of stores, we kept ours. When Macy's closed a ton of stores, we kept ours. The first time Sears closed a ton of stores, we kept ours. You know, this last time our Sears actually went out. Which just goes to show on a micro level, on a local level, how bad a shape they must be in when our mall that never loses its anchor stores lost its anchor store.
0: So that was a giant tangent.
1: We never do those right.
0: We could do an entire (laughs) episode dealing with malls and anchor stores and how all of that fun stuff works. It's actually kind of fascinating and sad to see how you have these super malls out there, how they're all disintegrating over the years. If you would like yeah. to go on your own personal tangent, do a search on YouTube and on Google of urban explorers and malls. It is fascinating right. to see all of these decrepit lost malls that were beautiful back in their time. They're still like a quarter operating. Like they might have one anchor store still working, but the rest of the mall is pretty much dead and barred off. And then they just explore that and you just see this stuff From back in time. It's like walking back in time where you see things from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. Sometimes you still see product there. Sometimes you still see the displays and the arts and stuff. It is a fascinating, fascinating thing to explore.
1: Absolutely. Just to bring that back around today, when you think of Sears, it's like it's that failing retail chain that's closing stores all over the country. But Sears was the number one retailer in America in the 1970s and had been for decades before that. Of course, like all of the early department stores that had started as a mail order business, as America was expanding out west and the west was calming down to the point where people were kind of starting to set up permanent routes, but you still didn't have a lot of infrastructure, retail infrastructure out there. Mail order catalogs like the Sears Roebuck catalog were your gateway into. Every little thing, from the smallest little pins and needles and buttons up to houses. If you want another interesting tangent, you can look up Sears and houses and see that there was a period of time where you could literally order a house in the Sears catalog and then they would come and build it for you. Sears was the number one retailer in the country. Sears was always keeping track of every trend that was going on everywhere. As we talked about in our Atari episode, so we don't need to belabor the point necessarily, there was a buyer at Sears in the sporting goods department that saw this Pong stuff going on in the arcade and saw this Magnavox Odyssey stuff going on and said to himself, you know, we do our best business spring, summer, early fall. You do have winter sports, obviously. Basketball is played over the winter, most notably. Hockey as well, but I think it's fair to say that hockey wasn't nearly as big in the United States in this time period, so that hardly counts. Most of the sports are spring, summer, fall sports. That's when you're selling your baseball equipment. That's when you're selling your football equipment. That's when you're selling your soccer balls. Even though basketball is a winter sport in terms of how it's played professionally, people that are shooting hoops in their own backyard, they're not buying basketball hoops in winter either. It is a spring, summer, fall business. In the winter, they kind of transitioned to indoor leisure. You know, this is kind of another interesting thing. The idea of having leisure products in your home was something that was also kind of very new in the late 1960s. I'm not a social historian, so I'm probably not getting this perfectly correct. But by the 1960s, you have a confluence of a few things. The American economy had done so well in the 1950s that even though the economy was starting to run into trouble and enter some recessionary trends, by the late 1960s, you kind of had a generation that had kids in the 50s and early 60s, in a period when the economy was going very well. They had the baby boomer generation, so you had a lot of families, you had a lot of children, you had people that had done well for themselves and were a little more affluent at this point. You really, for the first time, had this idea of having a den or a family room or a rec room or a rumpus room, whatever you wanted to call it, there were different things you could call it. But this idea that you had a room in your house that was just a place to gather the family to do fun things, this was kind of a new concept in this period of the late 1960s. So you started to see more home sales of ping pong tables, home sales of pool tables, People buying their own set of weights to do some weightlifting at home rather than going to the gym to do it. Maybe put up a dartboard in the room. You know, this is something new. The sporting goods department at Sears in the winter months turned more into a rec room operation than a pure outdoor sports operation. So Tom Quinn, this visionary guy, is like, we sell ping pong tables in the winter. What if we also sold these video game systems that you play ping pong on? There's a vague sports connection there. He tries to get them to Magnavox to allow him to sell the Odyssey. Well, Magnavox has a dealer exclusivity policy, right? So that's mostly a non-starter. However, Magnavox is starting to come around and realize we've been really shooting ourselves in the foot here. It's under new management. There's new management at Magnavox now. In late 74, they're even bought by Philips, so there's another layer of management on top. But there's new people in. They're trying to turn the ship because it's not going well, and so they're like, well, we can't really end our dealer exclusivity, but we can let you do it in the catalog. The Magnavox Odyssey does appear in the catalog in 1974. I have a scan of that catalog. I can confirm it's it's really in there. (laughs) But they weren't allowed to sell it in stores, and so Tom Quinn is looking for video game product. Again, most retailers at this point are not. It's a shockingly expensive product for the home. The Odyssey is $100. Atari's coming in with Home Pong at $100. It's very expensive as something that someone is just going to buy for fun. Retailers are generally pretty wary of it. Sears is excited because of this guy, Tom Quinn, and he's like, well, you know, people buy pool and table tennis tables from us to use in the home, and those are expensive. I don't think they'll necessarily balk at buying a video game system if we push it the right way. Atari tries to get companies interested, and they can get nobody interested, at least not on terms that work for them. They cold call Sears just because they're the largest retailer in the country. Maybe they'll take it. They don't call sporting goods. They call televisions somebody there remembers has some vague inkling it's like hey i think there was this guy down in sporting goods that was doing something with video games why don't you talk to them and and so that's how you get that atari and sears create that initial interest with the public because they're both strong brands sears of course is a very strong brand reliable brand reliability dependability everything until it was mismanaged right Atari has made a name for itself in video games, so much so that, as I said, Sears takes the unprecedented step of letting them put their logo on the product, even though they're still advertising it as their product. They're not advertising it as an Atari product. The Atari logo's on there. So, I mean, if you're in the know, you know. So, this creates some demand. But then, once they proved the viability of this, that's when all of these other companies get in. That's when you get chip companies like General Instrument and National Semiconductor saying the calculator chip market's drying up, the video game chip market seems to be the cool new thing. Let's make video game chips. This is why you get companies like APF and Unisonic, which are not well-known names today, but these are two of the dedicated console makers that got in. You get companies like that that had been in the business of importing calculators and other cheap electronics from the Far East doing contract work where they basically go to a company in the Far East and say, we want a product that looks like this, and then we're going to sell it in the U.S. Then that Asian company, most often in this period of time in Japan or Hong Kong, also Taiwan a little bit, but I think Taiwan comes in stronger a little later in this time period. It's more Japan and Hong Kong. They say, okay, we'll make this for you, and then the company sells it in their home market in the United States or Europe or whatever. The Asian companies know how to do this stuff cheaply. The labor is really cheap there, so they can put together something cheaply, but these companies have no contacts, no idea how to actually sell this product in the places that'll buy it. Then you have these import-export guys who know the Far East market really well and know the American market really well. And so they serve as the middleman to get these products into
0: the United States or into Europe primarily. There's also around a time when we have pong on the chip starting to come about, right? You're right. That's exactly
1: what I'm talking about. I hadn't used those words just yet. And you're right. It's time we used those words. That's exactly right. Moore's Law has continued to work. Chips are getting more powerful and cheaper. You have large-scale integrated circuits that are affordable now for consumer products. Therefore, you can do a Pong-style game, along with a couple of variants, on a single microchip. Not a microprocessor yet. We're still talking integrated circuit. It's all hardwired stuff. But you can do that using a single chip now, which is what makes this whole thing work. Magnavox initially, as I said, went with that three-chip solution because they were doing this just a little early and they weren't ready to go into LSIs yet. Atari has its own LSI made, and then that's what wakes up companies like National Semiconductor and General Instrument, who had been so big in markets like the calculator market, and wakes them up to the fact that they now have a new market where they can make chips. That general instrument chip is the one that dominates, mostly because they get to market first. So they kind of corner the market before anyone else comes in. National Semiconductor gets involved. Texas Instrument gets involved. Moss Technology gets involved. Other companies also do these chips. They just can't quite break that general instrument stranglehold. Now, for the first time in 1976, you have got a market. I mean, you have Magnavox selling a few tens of thousands here, a few hundreds of thousands there. In 1975, you have Atari that does really well, but they're supply-constrained. So you're still only talking about a market of between 300 and 400,000 units, even in 1975, which is the first year you could consider really successful. But then in 1976, with these chip companies coming in, particularly General Instrument, That's when the market just explodes, and it grows literally by a factor of 10. You go from a market that's maybe 300,000 units to a market that is 3 million units in a single year. It just completely blows up. That increase is not out of nowhere. People realized that this was about to happen, even in 1975, because everyone— that was making consoles in 1975 had back orders of hundreds of thousands of units that they couldn't fill. In addition to Atari in 75 and Magnavox, the two kind of big companies, you had three other companies that got in in the United States. One of those was URL, the Universal Research Laboratory, which had actually entered the market in 74. They were the second company to enter the market after Magnavox. They were a contract manufacturer to the arcade industry. A lot of the companies that had made clones of Pong, particularly Allied Leisure, who had the most successful clone, these companies didn't have the electronics expertise like Atari did. They were old line coin op companies that worked with electromechanical technology. So they relied on companies like URL to actually do the hardware that they would then repackage. Very similar thing going on. To uh, the Atari-Sears relationship in the home, where Atari actually makes the product, but then Sears brands it themselves. Allied Leisure put out their Pong clone, but URL did the hardware. URL got into the home business out of desperation, because they had made so much Pong hardware, and then that market suddenly collapsed. So they were like, well, what do we do with it now? Well, we have to try to sell it somewhere. Let's try to sell it in the home. And their product was always too expensive. They were selling their product for $200, $300 in the home when Magnavox and Atari were selling theirs for $100. That's because they were repurposing arcade hardware. In the first version of their video action console, they even included a television as part of the console. You can imagine that was just a non-starter on expense. Then you had a couple of other novelty companies called Executive Games and First Dimension. When I say novelty products companies, what I mean is these are companies that try to create products for niche markets, usually little collector's items or tchotchkes, little custom keychains or little custom chess sets or just products that are never going to find a mass market home. But if you can connect with the right kind of upper middle class or wealthy people, they just might buy them because they need something to spend their money on and they're bored. And so it's like, oh, that's kind of cute. I'll buy that. These two companies were kind of in that business, and they were like, well, okay, why not video games? Executive Games, in particular, had already been involved with home air hockey tables. They were looking at home pinball. So it's like, well, why not home video games, too? Now, neither of these companies built their own product. They contracted with firms in the Boston area, MIT-connected firms, to actually make their systems, but then they sold them. And those companies, because they weren't high volume sales companies, they were only able to sell three, four thousand units of what they put out in seventy-five, but they took back orders for way more than that. Everyone saw that this market was going to get big. And then in 76 it did get big. And of course the leader was Coleco. Again, we've talked about that. We've done a Coleco episodes, so we don't have to go into huge detail. Basically, Coleco was a company that was in outdoor products. They were a toy company but they were mostly involved in swimming pools, plastic swimming pools and wading pools. So they had a very heavily spring-summer slanted product line. They were looking to expand. They had tried an aggressive expansion, which we discussed in the early 70s. It had not gone well. A lot of that expansion had been in outdoor products like snowmobiles and dirt bikes because they saw themselves as kind of an outdoor company, and that just wasn't working for them. So they're like... We need to balance the product line. We need to get something going that is going to be a strong seller in the holiday season because you don't tend to find a wading pool under the tree at Christmas. It's just not a winter product. At least not in the United States. That's right. Exactly. And of course, everything we are talking about here today is the United States, even if I don't explicitly say that. Obviously, there are some nascent movements going on in Europe and other places, but we are. Really going to focus on the United States in this particular examination. So Coleco needs a product, and they see this video game thing starting, and they see an opportunity to get in on the ground floor. Toy companies in general aren't touching it because it's a product that's very different from what they'll normally do. But Coleco isn't strictly a toy company. They're already dealing in slightly more expensive products like swimming pools. Not your big, fancy, dug-in swimming pools, but, you know, they're still somewhat in the pool business, which is a little more of an expensive product. And so they're kind of already used to that, I think, not so scared away from it. They see this as the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a new product area. So Coleco dominates the market because they discover General Instrument early. They get all of their chips that they ordered, whereas a lot of companies that ordered don't because the market does just suddenly take off they dominate the market but there's plenty of other companies in there too as i said it's largely electronics import export companies or the chip companies themselves i mean national semiconductor releases their own system in addition to making their chip available to other companies that's the real first video game boom is this 1976 suddenly we're selling between 3 and 4 million consoles it's suddenly a big business It's reported to be one of the hottest items at Christmas in 1976. Everybody's planning to expand their lines in 77. There's a real practical limit to what can be done here with this LSI technology. You're talking about something that is not programmable, which means that every time you want to do a new concept, you have to create a new chip. The more complicated the game, the larger and more complicated the chip. The larger and more complicated the chip, the more failures you're going to have in the fabrication process. The more failures you have in the fabrication process, the lower your yield rate, the lower your yield rate, the higher the price of the chip because you have to factor in all of that worthless silicon you've just burned through in the price of your successful silicon that you're selling to people. This is an unsustainable business model. The technology is only going to be able to progress to a certain point while keeping the price halfway reasonable, and it's not reasonable to ask the public to spend another $60 to $100 every year just to get the next big thing. So remember, you know, $100 is close to the price of a PlayStation 5 and 72. You know, with inflation, let's see where we are now. I would say the average unit, once the high volume production comes in from these chip companies just churning out these things like General Instrument is, you're probably looking at more like $70 as being where most systems are going to lay here. Atari is a little more expensive, but that's a good one. Let's see what we're looking at in 1977 if we're buying a $70 product. $300. $308. $308. Better than 600 certainly not something I want to spend every year. And the Atari system, you know, that's more like in the $100 range, you're still talking about a $440 system. So the Switch right now, here in 2021, the Nintendo system, goes for $300. Basically, what they're saying is, you like these video game things, right? Well, what if I could tell you that you can buy a new Nintendo Switch every year and it will play one or two games that you couldn't play before and that's it most of them will probably still be just some dumb new variant of a ball and paddle game would you buy that new nintendo switch every year jeffrey no exactly it's untenable i mean these things pile up they're expensive for limited gameplay it's fine to buy one they're bulky Yeah. Are you really going to buy a second one in 1977 and then a third one in 1978 just so that you can play six more ball and paddle variants? And maybe this time we've thrown in a driving game or you can buy this completely separate console that can just play tank. (laughs) It doesn't work. There are a couple of ways around this. You could release a base system that is just a dumb system which just has controls in it, just has the basic interface, then you can release modules that each have an LSI on them that has a different one of these chips on them. This is something that is more common in Europe. Europe tries this because it's the cheaper way to do this. General Instrument, once that Pong system is so successful in 76, and 77 they release a whole array of chips that are based on all of the popular coin-op games of the day. So they do a chip that does tank-style games. They do a chip that does Seawolf-type submarine-shooting games. They do a chip that does driving games. They do a chip that does basically what Atari's Stunt Cycle does, which is a game where you're jumping a bike over buses, motorcycle over buses, like Evil Knievel, the stuntman who was popular in that period of time. They release this whole set of chips for 77. So one approach you can do is say, okay, we'll make one console. Then we'll make a little module or a cartridge with this chip on it. That'll plug in and you can play that game. And then you can buy this cartridge that has this chip and you can play the submarine game and that kind of thing.
0: Very much in the vein of a programmable console, but more of a prototype or proto-programmable console because I'm doing the concept of a programmable console where I swap out a cartridge that has my program on it but it's not something that's programmed. That cartridge is the game with a discrete logic thing. I can't reflash that thing and put a different program on it or just have a generic programmable chip that I flash an image to. I have to redesign that entire cartridge every single time. That cartridge might get bigger or smaller, depending on exactly what I want to do. Right. So the benefit of that approach to the consumer
1: is that your upfront cost is much lower than a programmable because there's no electronics, really. There's no CPU in your basic hardware. So that means it's cheaper because there's no microprocessor, there's no complex electronics in that base unit. The downside to that, though, is that there's only so much you can do with a custom-made LSI It's all hardwired. There's no programming. There's no memory. Every single time you want to do a different function of some kind, display different graphical elements, have different control schemes, you're talking about creating a whole nother array of logic gates and a whole new chip in order to accomplish that. So it's cheaper on the consumer end, but it's limiting on the production end because there's only so much you can do with it.
0: I would like to give another thought process here. Think about debugging that. Yeah. What we're doing now with code, oh, I just missed a semicolon here, and that just caused us to go crazy. I can put that in there, and that's fine. With these LSI circuits, oops, I put a resistor in the wrong spot, or I wired this thing in. Great, yeah, I can fix that. But in the act of fixing that, I might cross wire somewhere else, <laughs> which then might cross wire somewhere else which then causes the entire thing to open a dimensional portal to doom. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Remember as well that this is in the days before CAD, before computer-assisted design, is really a thing. When you are making a chip, you are drawing all of this out. You're using something called Lift. That's a brand name it was the main brand in use and it was the brand used by the company that invented it.
0: It's really, really complicated. If you're interested in it, I will have some explanation videos in the show notes. If you would like some more information about it and how it works, just check those out. Absolutely. But basically you, you had to hand draw
1: out all of your traces and then lay these big sheets out and put this ruby lith material over top. Then, since RubyLith is dual layer, you would cut away the top layer in order to create your mask. Those would be the spots where all of your tracings were going to be on your board and whatnot. I know I'm probably not completely getting to the proper point here, but by doing this, then you could create the mask to produce your chips. This was all being done by hand, hand drawing and hand cutting. If you had to make a change, you weren't just going into your CAD program and being like, okay, I'll take that line here and move that line over here, or we'll just add another couple of transistors over here. I mean, you're actually redrawing stuff, recutting stuff. It's a complex process. It's not a great permanent solution to the problem. It has a little benefit in consumer cost, but it's only going to get you a little further down the line. So this is exactly why you get programmability coming in right in the middle of this market. Everyone can see that this is a market that is unsustainable. You can see that even if you just look at calculators, because what happened in calculators, you release this year's model. It's at a certain price point. It sells well because everyone's like, yay, calculators, woo. Well, then the very next year, because we've got Moore's Law in operation, and remember in the early days, Moore's Law was really operating more on a 12-month cycle than an 18-month cycle. Next year, you have the newer calculator. The newer calculator is more capable. It may be a little cheaper, but it's the whole Moore's Law thing. You can get a more powerful calculator for the same price, or you can get a calculator that did everything last year's model did for a far cheaper price. What happens? You get massive discounting. Last year's calculators are worthless. Right after the holiday season, When people are buying the expensive stuff, you get a discount. And something that was $70 is now $40 or $30. A lot of consumers are like, well, I won't buy the latest system. I'll just wait till after Christmas when I can buy last year's system for cheaper. Because after all, who cares if it only has five games on it instead of eight games on it? They're all just basically ball and paddle games anyway. So who cares if I can't play the volleyball variant? I can just maybe catch that next year for $30. So you get this cycle that happened also in calculators where your product is worthless at retail after the holiday season. It gets deeply discounted, and then that deep discounting lures people to just wait for deeply discounted systems rather than buying expensive systems. It's a little similar to the same dynamics of the video game Crash in eighty three, eighty four, which we've talked about before, in which people were still buying software, it's just that they had been completely de-incentivized to buy software at full price. It's not as acute in this case, but it's the same kind of market force. Why am I going to buy the latest system for $70 to $100 that can only play a couple of new games when I can just buy last year's model for literally $30? It's a completely unsustainable economic model. It collapsed, I think, faster than people expected it to. People were expecting 1977 to be a massive growth year. Everyone was talking about 7 to 10 million units, going from 3 million to 7 million, a more than doubling of the market. Because again, 1976 was very supply constrained. General Instrument could not get chips to everybody who wanted them. Other companies could not deliver chips to everyone who wanted them. The market demand was huge. What they didn't anticipate and what they probably would have if they had looked at the calculator market was the deep, deep discounting that occurred after the 76 holiday season when all of those systems that were left on the shelves, all of those orders that were suddenly filled were now worthless. What this meant from a practical perspective, the analysts were expecting, okay, we were under demand by this amount, so next year production's going to catch up, and the retailers will be able to order everything they want, therefore they're going to sell 7 to 10 million units because that's what they would have sold in 1976 if the market had been fully supplied. So that feels like a reasonable estimate when you look at it that way. On the one hand, you're looking at they really think it's going to grow by over Double. But on the other hand, you can look at it and say, well, they're expecting the market to more than double based on what was actually sold, but they're not expecting the market to more than double based on what the demand appeared to have been. It looks a little less crazy that way. What they didn't account for, though, is that the retailers all saw how their systems were worthless after Christmas rather than greatly increasing their orders or keeping their orders at a high level in order to catch the market. The retailers all got cold feet and said, Oh, anything we don't sell at Christmas is not going to sell at all. So we need to order conservatively to make sure that we're not stuck with worthless inventory because that is the true death right there. I mean, ideally, you want to catch obviously market demand perfectly. You want to order exactly as many units as you can sell because that's best for everybody. But it's better to miss a little bit of the market and leave them wanting more than it is to overestimate the market and suddenly being stuck with all of this absolutely worthless inventory. 77 is still a growth year in dedicated consoles. There are varying estimates. It gets a little tricky because, of course, some of the estimates were done earlier in the year when everyone was excited and thought this market was going to blow up. Then other estimates are done after the smoke kind of clears. So there's a fairly wide range of estimates, but I think some of the most reliable estimates peg the market at about 5 million units in 1977. On the one hand, you can look at that and be like, that's great, they sold 3 million in 1976, they sold 5 million in 1977, that means the market's growing, hooray. Well, no. First of all, that's way underestimate, which means that the market is not attracting new interest at the same rate that it had been attracting interest in 75, 76. You can see that there's already starting to be fatigue in the marketplace. The other thing is is that a lot of those units sold at those discounted prices. Even though unit sales were way up, dollar sales were not keeping pace and were starting to basically flatten out because you're getting a lot of that deep discounting. So the market at this point is really in crisis. At the exact same moment, you have this new handheld game stuff coming out that we've talked about, the Mattel handhelds like Auto Race and Football. These are very primitive systems as well, but they're far cheaper than video game systems and arguably provide about the same amount of entertainment value as most of them. Yeah, you're just one strip of LEDs dodging another strip of LEDs, but in video games at this point, you're usually one square that's batting another square to a third square. It's all so primitive that the consumer is going to be naturally drawn to the cheaper, much cheaper product, a product that sells new for 20 to $30 you can maybe get a video game for that if you wait for the deep discounts, but we're talking about a new product that's 20, 30, 40 dollars, rather than is 70, 80, a hundred dollars. Retailers think this handheld thing is great. Consumers think this handheld thing is great. The video games are getting. Way too complicated to deal with. You're getting new systems that barely iterate on the old systems. You get companies trying to do product lines. The Coleco strategy and the Magnavox strategy was that they would take functionality and they would include a little functionality on this system, a little more functionality on this system, a little more on this system, and then release them all at different price points. To give an example, the general instrument, original Pong on a chip, ...could do six games. It could do three ball and paddle games... ...a ball and paddle practice mode... ...which was basically a solitaire game... ...and two target shooting games... ...if you wanted to hook up the controls for that. So the Telstar... ...the original system they did... ...just played three of the ball and paddle games. They didn't include the shooting games. So then the next year... ...they released a system... ...that did all of the games on the chip. The technology hadn't actually improved... They just took the technology that already existed and did more functionality. So in 1977, what does Coleco do? They release multiple systems at different price points that use the same technology, essentially, but they're mixing and matching the games. The original Telstar played three games, counting the practice mode. That's it. Then in 1977, they released the Telstar Alpha, which included the fourth ball and paddle game. They released that for $40. Then they released a color version because GI had released a companion chip that allowed you to get this thing to work in color. The basic chip was black and white, but you could buy the second chip to add color to it. So then they did the Telstar Colormatic, which is the exact same system as the Alpha, but it's in color, and it's $10 more expensive. Then they did their top-line system, the Telstar Ranger, which added the two target shooting games and sold for $60. And then they released a fourth system, the Telstar Galaxy, which used the upgraded version, the 1977 model of the Pong on a chip that had eight games on it rather than the four ball and paddle games of the original GI chip. I just used them as an example. Obviously, we talked about all this in our Coleco episode, but this is just an example. This is one company releasing four different systems, At three different price points, three of these systems literally have the exact same chip in them. They're just unlocking different combinations, harnessing different combinations of what that chip can do. Then the fourth system has a different chip, but even that different chip, you're talking about it plays all of the same games as the other chip does. And then it just adds a couple of more ball and paddle variants on top of that. It's
0: nonsense. It's crazy, but this isn't isolated to the United States. This also went on in Japan. We talked about with Nintendo and their Pong on a chip systems. Absolutely. The Nintendo Color TV 6 and the Color TV 15 does the same thing. This is not something that's isolated to just one company or one set of companies or even really one market. It's fascinating to think that you sort of have this parallel evolution of hey, we're going to make the same thing, just different levels of it, throw it all out there and see who wants to buy it. In Japan, they're doing the same thing. And I imagine in other foreign markets, they were also doing the same thing.
1: Oh, yeah. No, in Europe, they were doing the same thing as well. The thing that makes what Coleco was starting to do and some of these other companies starting to do ridiculous, though, is you can kind of make an argument for having the basic system and the deluxe system. That's what Nintendo did with their color TV systems. That's what Magnavox did when they released the 100 and the 200 in 1975. The idea was, we have a vision for what we want our system to be. We're going to release that system. Because our vision is somewhat expensive, we're going to release a cost-reduced version of that, That opens up a little more of the market because it'll get us to people that maybe can't afford that system. But it also protects us a little bit from the competition because we're not going to get a knockoff doing this for us instead. Because the logical thing to do is if there's a product that's too expensive is to knock it off and make it cheaper. So by releasing both a low-end system and a high-end system, the complete system and the cost-reduced system at the same time, you grab a little more of the market while also protecting yourself from knockoffs. This is very effective for, say, Nintendo, because they're not really cannibalizing themselves too much by having two systems. When Coleco has four systems, where there's a lot smaller degree of gradients between these systems... Now you're talking about a situation where you're cannibalizing your own sales and you're just putting a lot of junk on the shelves that nobody's going to buy because nobody's going to buy all of those systems. People are only going to buy one, maybe two, depending. Realistically, probably just one of those systems. Retailers aren't going to order all of them in great numbers. You're just cannibalizing your own market at that point. Coleco's not the only company that's doing this. There's a bewildering array of chips on the market at this point. There's a bewildering array of systems that are trying to go for different functionality and different price points. It's getting expensive. Atari releases an advanced system called Video Pinball that, again, leaps back up to that $100 mark. And it's it's interesting. It plays some pinball-style games, and it plays Breakout. It's in color. It has a microcontroller in it, not a microprocessor, but a microcontroller. It has some RAM in it. But again, now we're going back to saying, you want to play Breakout in the home? Well, for $100, you can. And it's like, well, you all are selling us these Pong systems now for $70. I can get last year's model for $30. And now you're saying, if I want to play Breakout and a couple of pinball games that are a little similar to Breakout, I have to shell out more money than that? I have to go back up to $100? It's still all just a bunch of squares on the screen. Of course, technically, we know why that is, because when you're just bouncing a ball back and forth, all you've got is these three objects, and these three objects are always on the screen, or six objects or eight objects. You know, If you're playing multiplayer games or you're playing different variants, they're constantly there. They're always on the screen as you're batting them back and forth. Breakout or a pinball game where you're knocking out targets, you're talking about objects that appear and disappear. When you hit them, they actually go away, and that's the point where you start needing more complex memory because you have to keep track of what's on the screen at any given time instead of assuming that everything's always on the screen. So technically, we know why they're more expensive, but the general public doesn't appreciate those nuances at the time. All they see is now they're releasing another game and they're trying to jack the price up on us again to just play a single game. Next year, no doubt, they'll try to get us to play another different game. And, and we're back to the same problem. Do you want to buy a Nintendo Switch every year that can just play one game and you can never expand that game library? Well, Alex, I think it's about time that we got into those programmable consoles then. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is why, at the same time this is going on, the market starts to move towards programmability. Of course, Atari's right there, because Atari's always right there. They are a true pioneer. They are the first company that is created to be a video game company. All the other companies that are releasing coin-operated video games and home video games, they are companies in other fields that are like, wouldn't this be fun? Midway, subsidiary of Bally, is in the electromechanical arcade game business. They see this video game thing happen and they're like, we make games just like this. We're just doing it with relays and steppers and switches and contacts and wipers and all of these electromechanical components. Let's take our game design knowledge and let's apply it to this new technology and do this. Magnavox, televisions company, our television sales are flagging. We need to do something else. This is something that plugs into televisions. It uses components we already use in our televisions. We understand the manufacturing of this kind of product. We can sell it as an add-on to our televisions. That'll be great. Let's jump into this market. General Instrument making the Pong on a chip. We make chips for companies. We make chips for calculators. We make chips for televisions. We make chips for radios. We make chips for whatever. This video game thing is hot. Why not make a video game chip? You've got these other companies that are jumping in. Atari is truly the one company in this period that's like, Space War was cool. I want to make games like that for people. I am founding a video game company. That is truly something that sets Atari apart. So Atari's there, of course. They're thinking about the problems. They're like, we're getting to the limits of what TTL hardware can do. We can't keep creating a new chip every year to make a new game and then expect the public to keep buying that. Let's see how we can fix that. But the other companies that are there are, again, it's the semiconductor companies. Like Fairchild, we of course talked about the Fairchild Channel F. It's the first programmable that reaches the market. But again, here's a company that's thinking to itself, we want to capture the consumer electronics market. We want to do what Texas Instrument did because we saw how much money that made them. It's too late for calculators. We can't do that. We'll do digital watches. Oh, great. We got into digital watches just in time for that market to start falling apart the same way calculators did. We want to be in consumer electronics, what can we do? Okay, well this video game thing's taking off. Great, we'll do this video game thing. So they make a deal with a company called Merco and they're gonna have a dedicated system. Like everyone else is doing dedicated systems. But at the same time, they make contact with Alpex Computer Corporation that has been working on their own programmable video game system on the side, because they're another company that got burned in the market. They're a small kind of R&D company. They were working in electronic cash registers. They got screwed when the big companies, when IBM and NCR, which, you know, stands for National Cash Register, decide to get into electronic cash registers. So there's no place for them anymore. The big people have squeezed them out. So what do we do? Well, let's look at video games. Unlike some of these other companies, they're a little more tech-savvy. They're like, okay, well, video games, yeah, this dedicated stuff is not going to do well. Why don't we do something where you can play more than one game on a system and swap them out? The microprocessor's a thing now. We can do this. So they create a prototype hardware. They need someone to sell it to. Well, let's look at the TV companies, okay? The TV companies aren't interested because they seem to be perpetually behind the times on this. What about the semiconductor companies there making microprocessors? Maybe they'd like to be involved in this. Oh, we know someone at Fairchild, so let's go talk to Fairchild. Oh, Fairchild wants to get into this because they're in consumer electronics, but watches are falling apart. There you have a match. That's how this happens a lot in the early days of this industry, before there's the idea of a true dedicated video game company, when Atari is an outlier rather than the norm. Here's one company that's like, oh, my God, we need a new complex electronic product because we can't do cash registers anymore. Let's try video games. Then there's a chip company that's like, oh, my God, we want to be in consumer electronics, but we can't do calculators or watches anymore. Let's try video games. Then they join together, and you have a video game system, the Channel F. RCA gets involved in this time period, and the thought process there is basically the computer division that they used to have which was a mainframe business. We're not talking personal computers. The mainframe business they had had fallen apart. They shut down the operation, but they still had a research lab that was really involved in semiconductors. RCA was very big in semiconductors. So you had a guy, Joseph Weisbacher, at the company who was like, I want to keep doing computers, but my company's not doing computers anymore. I'm going to kind of tinker around with microprocessors because we're still working with that I'm gonna build some basic computer systems game playing systems etc and see if I can get a division of the company to buy into this and so he makes little computers he makes an arcade system he makes what ultimately becomes the RCA Studio 2 that's released until he finally finds something that someone else in the company is like okay fine we'll try selling that you have this shift of programmables. The first companies that get in, Fairchild and RCA, are not really too hip to the video game thing because they're kind of coming at it, you know, at an oblique angle here. They're not really knowledgeable. They don't understand necessarily what's important to get into that product to make it a viable product at a good price point. Then you have Atari coming in on top of them. Their system happens to come out after both of those, but they were working on theirs at the same time. But they're coming at it from a more, okay, we've got all of these hit arcade games. We can't keep building a chip every time we want to do a new one. How do we solve this problem? The answer is we make a core unit that will accept a microprocessor. They make it modular like some of the scientific calculators that are coming out. From there, they're like, well, if we're making this modular anyway, Why should we release a bunch of different system configurations that each just have a different microprocessor in them? Why don't we just let people swap that out themselves? Boom, you have this programmable market. Fairchild releases the Channel F in 1976. RCA releases the Studio 2 in mid-1977. They have a test market earlier in the year, mass market by the middle of the year. And then Atari releases the VCS. At the end of 1977, kind of in the fall, probably starts trickling out in August, really mass released in September. So now you have a complex, three tiered market for electronic entertainment in the home, interactive electronic entertainment in the home. You have the new handhelds pioneered by Mattel, but other companies are getting in really fast that have captured the low end with simple but fun and cheap, very important, gameplay. You have this dedicated console wasteland that has been so segmented with weird price points and weird system configurations that everybody's kind of souring on it. Now you have this new programmable thing coming in on top of that, which is like, hey, look, we can play games just like on these dedicated systems, but you only have to buy one system and we'll keep supplying lots of games for it over time. So we're going to ask you to pay a little more up front, anywhere from $150 to $200 instead of $70 to $100. But after you do, you'll be able to play a bunch of other games in the coming weeks, months, years really cheaply. And so it's an investment. and We've got that taking over the high end. One might think, because you look back and it's like, oh, Atari VCS, yeah, that was really popular. Everybody played the Atari, you know, they were synonymous with video games. So you might think to yourself, and 1977 came, and programmables came, and then the video game market was here. Well, because of this cesspool that's been created by all of these competing ideas of what electronic entertainment is, and all of these competing ideas of how to sell and package electronic entertainment, that is not the case at all. As we head into part two of this look next time... We'll really get that programmable market established, see why it failed at first, see why it ultimately took off, and then very, very briefly tie that in to when it all fell apart at the very end in the crash. We're we're not going to relitigate that because we've done a three-part episode already, but we'll bridge the rest of this period from the first programmables in 76-77 to the fall of the market in 83 as we get into part two of this broad look at the early console market.
0: What this kind of reminds me of is an old skit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which I will now paraphrase in order to illustrate the point. (laughs) I created Pong as a dedicated console. That fell over and sank into the swamp. (laughs) I created Pong with lots and lots of games and LSI circuits. That burned down and fell into the swamp. Now, the third thing, I created handheld consoles that were little LED things. They just blew up in my hand and fell into the swamp. (laughs) Now, this programmable thing, it stayed. It had all the corpses of those other consoles down below in the wasteland of the swamp. And that thing stood. And it is what we have today.
1: (laughs) Sure, we can go with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into some of the nitty-gritty of how everything burned down, fell over, and, and sank into the swamp as we get into part two in our next release.
0: All right. Well, since we've been in 1977 for five years now, we better start planning our escape eventually. Let me go start getting these circuits together and figure out if we can find a way out of here. Maybe with the programmable consoles. <laughs> so we'll see you next time from 1970-something on They Create Worlds. <laughs> Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.